0: Five, four, three, two, one. It's The Scoops.
1: Hey guys, welcome to The Scoops, episode four. Uh, really cool that we've already made three episodes and now we're on our fourth. Sorry, this one's taken a little while. Um, if you guys don't remember, uh, we decided to choose to review a book for you. Uh, kind of an interpretation different things it's about and our favorite points book is called everything is fucked by Mark Manson Uh, a book about hope so we'll talk about it we'll talk about our favorite things we'll have questions for each other we'll have discussion Uh, yeah gonna hope you guys enjoy it if you haven't listened to the other episodes uh, not on purpose by accident our other episodes really tie into this book uh, motivation emotional intelligence so go watch listen to those episodes first and then uh, come listen to this one so a quick little part from the book explaining this the opening of the book so that's when penlicky volunteered to sneak into auschwitz initially it was a rescue mission he would allow himself to get arrested and once there he would organize with other Polish soldiers, coordinate a mutiny, and break out of the prison camp. It was a missile, mission so suicidal that he, that he might as well have asked his commander permission to drink a bucket of bleach. His superiors thought he was crazy and told him as told him as much. So boom. Starting about talking about a guy in Poland trying to break people out of Auschwitz.
0: You got hope. That guy's got plenty. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, you you know, he... he the, the opening of the book, the first, I would say, 30 pages, 40 pages, you know, we're talking about hope and, and what it means to have. Um, the perspective, too, of tyranny and suffering and, you know, the... Pidlicki, the the soldier has a choice right then and there what kind of things do you guys think thinks going through his head what kind of perspective is he having of i'm gonna volunteer to go into this nazi camp and go save a bunch of people
0: i feel like uh like i said in the motivation podcast everything is very situational Uh, And in that situation, they were relatively deep in the war where Auschwitz was already established, and they knew that it was a very poor prisoner of war camp. So um, in that situation, I feel like if he knew his fellow soldiers were in there and he he knew those were his friends, his brothers, it wouldn't even be a think twice Mm. opportunity for him.
2: That's a fair point. He also had like... Previous experience with that kind of stuff too, right? Um, like I was just going back and looking, and he, he talks about how he was in the Polish-Soviet War of 1918 uh, before World War II happened, right? Mm-hmm. And and he had like already he'd already been fighting uh, the Nazis and other uh, regimes of government that that were trying to overthrow him, right? So so with 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 the theme of what.
1: You know mark Manson's trying to talk about so that that hope drives him and is, is it the hope or is it the that experience of success uh, that's kind of what you're saying there is, is yeah it that experience I think it's, of success that gives you hope
0: i think it's both i think the fact that he had already had experience in that type or any type of warfare would be like hey we're we're better than this we can overcome this so Yeah. I, I hate to be like oh hope is so naive in some situations it's not He's had experience
1: well, and that and that's the basis start of the opening of the book is you know what what's the point about life if there is no hope or, or the overall book um, you know um, talks about in our psyche Um, our psyche needs hope to survive, uh, the way a fish needs water. Hope is the fuel of our, our mental engine. It's the butter on our biscuits. It's a lot of, it's a lot of cheesy metaphors, but without hope, uh, your whole mental apparatus will stall, stall out and starve. You know, um, the, the crazy part, and and he talks about it right here. I'll just read from the book again. Uh, here's what a lot of people don't get. The opposite of happiness is not anger or sadness. If you're angry or sad, that means you still give a fuck about something. (laughs) That means something still matters. That means you still have hope. So no, the opposite of happiness is not hopelessness. It's indifferent. Sorry. The opposite of happiness is hopelessness. An endless gray horizon of resignation and indifference. The belief that everything's fucked. So... Why do anything at all? Which is crazy. Yeah, actually. If, yeah. For the people that do lose hope, and there's people in this world that lose their hope, you know. To actually say that out loud and get in that mind of perspective mm-hmm. is just.
0: Just the indifference of it. Indifference. For sure. That's like, that's very much my favorite word to sum up. Hopelessness is just indifference. Because people always think of like hopelessness, depression, things like that as being very sad, very pessimistic all that stuff but for the most part it's mostly just indifference like you just don't give a fuck you just don't care
1: and it's just so interesting to think of it that way especially when you talk about things like suicide and trying to say oh that person was really sad you know and and they, they were sad to a point but I think to the point that pushed them over the edge is like what you said it went from sad to indifferent
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It went to this gray area, which I don't know about you guys, but in my life, like I need some form of emotion. There is yeah. no, but there is yeah. no. In yeah, you
0: gotta, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta feel something.
1: Gotta feel something. So as, as we continue on, like for the first part, which is uh, still a lot about understanding the value or the purpose of hope or the lack of hope, is another part uh, called the paradox of progress. So. You know, starting to get away a little away from hope, but still that sense of hopelessness and what we're creating in the modern world today. Obviously, with COVID going on right now, there's a lot of ups and downs people are going through. (laughs) But basically, the paradox of progress is we live in an interesting time that materially things are arguably getting better than they've ever been before. Yet, we seem to be losing our minds thinking the world is one giant toilet bowl about to be flushed. An irrational sense of hopelessness is spreading across the rich developed world. It's a paradox of progress. The better things get, the more anxious and desperate we all seem to feel. And I think that's so true if you just look at look at the ability that we have to build this podcast, but on top of that, there's somebody tracking our data. There's people now, right? You you wanted Facebook, you wanted to connect to the world, you wanted internet, you wanted this. But now people are tracking our data because they want to be able to purchase things, but we get anxious about that. Like we created social media networks and all these different like Amazon becoming the monster it is. We created that out of our wants and desires.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's about perspective. 20 years ago, people weren't worried about those things because they were not a thing. People were worried about their businesses surviving and they weren't worried about advertising their buying statistics to whatever company was buying them. Um, So the problems we have now, which he talked about in this book, are very different than the problems they had 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And now, obviously, this book was written pre-pandemic. Our perspective has also shifted a lot as it was last year as it is today. Um, Last year, the things we were worried about are not the things we're worried about today. I think most recently, in in light of recent things, we were worried about a, a lot of things on Facebook have been about freedom of speech, freedom of being able to move about as they would like and um it's interesting to see the monster (laughs) as you said that that we created
2: yeah yeah i think it's interesting too that uh i feel like we we sweat the small stuff because we don't have big things to worry about anymore you know like like until recently we didn't have to worry about plagues you know what i mean like you 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 have Free healthcare, like you didn't have to worry about being sick. Whereas, like if you had like a toothache back in the day, that was a big deal. Like (laughs) you would have to pay a lot of money for that kind of thing. So it leaves your brain open to to worry about smaller things uh, that before in history we never would have thought would be a problem. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: General socioeconomic status of everyone is kind of raised up. So uh, the amount of people that are worrying about where their food and shelter and all that stuff is coming from has lessened. And as Jeff said, it it's allowed us to sweat the smaller things, which may in turn, like the book said, allow us to sweat the small stuff and become more stressed out and unhappy. But again, it's about perspective.
1: <laughs> so i ask question now, and I'm going to try to remember to ask it at the end. Do you think people are benefiting from this greater you know like jeff said we never dealt with a plague or a pandemic before and i i don't even think my parents have dealt with something like this where not the whole world not, no the whole world <laughs> shut down um do you think people are getting like back in touch with who they are or what they what they truly value or you think like big stuff happens and it's able to like quickly shift our perspective I kind of set that up too much but
0: no I completely agree I think it has I think it's shown people's true colors I think it has allowed people to that being said I also follow a lot of positive social media sites that allow me to see the things I want to see and not a lot of the things that I don't want to and that has to go back to the social media empire that we have developed as our generation but I think in this current situation, it's allowed us to find that, what do we really need to be happy? Do we have a house? Do we have food? Do we have our bills paid for? Do we have the opportunity to be with the people that we love? For the most part, yes.
2: Yeah, I definitely think it, it uh, has allowed people to appreciate um, the things they took for granted since it, it, it this plague happened, you know? Like, take for granted. Uh, yeah, so for instance, like the it's time with their family I feel like a lot of people worked so hard uh, to get money for their family and to like have a better house and to buy the boat for them, but they really didn't spend time. And now that they're being forced to spend time, they're realizing that like maybe that wasn't what was important. Like maybe I did need to take a step back and actually just be with them. You know, I I feel like that's happening a lot uh, right now. Um, People are really starting to realize like what they actually uh, want out of life and like what they appreciate. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll just say 100% agree with that.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, for those <laughs> who that don't know, he just know, wants to
0: drive home to his mom's house every well, weekend.
2: No,
1: that's no. Oh, happy. Yeah. But no, yeah. I, you know, I lost my job that I thought was going to be my job for 30 years during COVID. Uh, hopefully, because of COVID, and it's not some like weird nasty reason behind it. But um, all jokes aside, I am so happy. In a weird way, that something came into my life, stopped me, and said, Nope, can't do that job anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, I could, I could go back maybe after, but nope, don't, you're not going to do it for right now. You're going to think about life, you're going to think about your perspective and what's important. Mm-hmm. And 100%, I was doing that job. And, you know, he talks about it later in the book, but as a means to an end. And I don't know if that end was positive for me. Like
0: It's like you thought in 30 years when you were 60 that you were going to be happy. But for those yeah. 30 years, you were going to be
1: completely oh, cool. I going to do whatever that company told me to. We don't need to name it or shame it. Yeah. I, don't, I think legally I'm not allowed to. No. Um, but
0: you were definitely that dancing monkey, for sure. You oh, definitely...
1: I was drinking the Kool-Aid.
0: <laughs> not to say it's bad. A lot of people do that. And sometimes it works out. So...
1: But I think you can have a balance. And I, I, I can say from my own experience, I didn't have that balance. I, I was doing things. You know, this book was such good timing because it talks about, in a bit here, we'll talk about thinking versus feeling brains. But, you know, it talks about values and how fate and fate and control and some things are just out of your control. But at the end of the day, you got to be happy with the choices you make.
0: Do you think you would have read this differently had COVID not happened? Probably. Because we started this very much months or two months prior to any sort of pandemic happening. And I I had read this book probably a year and a half ago and was like, yeah, this is a good one I would recommend to people. Um, and now that we're in the current situation, do you think that it's shifted your perspective and you've changed how you've taken the things you said in the book?
1: Everything's shifting my perspective though, so it's hard to say. (laughs) It's hard to say. Yes, I will say yes then to your question. Uh, Reading this book now versus six months ago, I don't even know if I would have finished the book.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't have had time, Benny. You wouldn't have
1: not even not even that. I would have just said something like that. I would. My brain would have been so focused on work and achieving things at work that I didn't really care about a lot of other things on the side. Mm -hmm. Maybe other than football, coaching football was the only thing my brain could like lock on to other yeah. than that other than that when i didn't have football okay what was it well then it's work and i gotta crush yeah. work i gotta to be fair work.
0: your topics of conversation have been very much more diverse since you've been laid off
1: <laughs> yeah because i because i don't got what to talk about
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got your personality back hey <laughs> it's like yeah, when it you is. have a really good breakup and everyone's really happy for you
1: <laughs> so back to the book um to end up our, our first breakdown of the first chunk, the, the book is written in two parts, part one, part two, uh, but our first chunk of the book about the whole paradox of progress, uh, the value system, and you know, uh, appreciating perspective, and, and and how our, what we feel we're in control of our, our value and perspective. Um, reading the end of of one of the chapters which i i just really liked and and something we can come back to by the end but we will return to the original question what is happening in our world that is causing us to feel worse despite everything consistently getting better and he says and the answer might surprise you so as we move to the second part for us we expand into kind of a psychology part of the book um Starting off with the title, Self-Control is an Illusion, which is just wild because we just talked about emotional intelligence and having self-control. But he kind of mocks the CEOs for having a lack of emotion and being robotic. My my general question, because I was always told at work... Time and sometimes, and sometimes they were right. Sometimes I felt like somebody was wrong, but being too emotional, getting fired up about something. What's that for you guys? I'm just curious. I think that
0: that also has to come down to personality because you are very much a more emotional person and you can display empathy and sympathy a lot more readily than regular people. And I know from going through school, um, I have a very hard time with empathy so i think it as a leadership role it very much comes down to what kind of personality you have so someone like me would have to really work on the fact that i i need to work on sympathy and empathy and being able to relate psychologically and give those people what they need whereas you may need to reel that back in a leadership position
1: yeah i understand that yeah so let's talk about that that extreme part because you know the the business 101 it's it's taught in my business school it's taught uh, it was taught during my like corporate training and all that and my leadership training um, in the business world is everybody wants a cool calm collected leader now in a time of adversity or stress yes you want someone who is cool cool headed can think step back strategically analyze and make a good decision but that being said in a normal situation so something goes wrong, something, no, not wrong, but, you know, something in the realm of somebody's control, is it bad to get fired up about stuff? I'm still curious about this topic. Now the answer, the textbooks is no.
0: Here's my thing is when you're working with other people, for instance, you were a manager in a restaurant, Jeff also worked in a restaurant. I also worked in a restaurant. When a customer, got super fired up about something, and was all up in your grill, did you get fired up back? Re- like, for reals, tell us the truth. Did you get fired up back?
1: At at the, uh, the place of work. <laughs> <Kind> of, like, <laughs> kind of, like, uh, I don't think I ever yelled at a customer.
0: You did not. I know for a fact you did
1: not. I I actually had to put it back because I was like, I've yelled at people. You did
0: not because in a situation where I wanted to yell at someone, Ben was my manager and I said, you know what, I'm going to get my manager for you, knowing that you would back me, but also not yell. So I know for a fact you didn't yell. (laughs)
1: You're not helping my point because I get told time and time, not time and time again, but here and there in certain situations that I'm emotional.
2: Jeff's about to say but, something. What do you yeah, say? No, nope. Jeff. I was going to say I feel like you just have to be fired up in a strategic way, uh, if that makes sense. Yes. Like you have to choose when you want to be fired up, like as, as a leader. So, for instance, when I'm training a big group of kids, if I come in all like daisy just because I'm tired that day, uh, they're going to feed off that energy. Um, Whereas if I come in fired up and happy to be there, yes, like that's I, like you said, I'm not reacting to something bad happening or anything like that, but they can feed mm-hmm. off of that energy. And I think you, you always have to come in with that that high energy to get the people that you're trying to lead um, to follow you, if that makes sense. It doesn't mean that you're you're emotional, uh, that you're you're fired up um,
0: negatively. Yeah.
2: In a yeah. negative way, if that makes sense.
1: I was talking about in a angry kind of way, maybe. but
0: oh, okay. uh, <laughs> Fired up can mean a lot of things, because you would come into those situations fired up, but you would be fired up in like a, I'm going to turn this shit around kind of way.
1: So then my question would be, would you prefer someone that is cool, calm, collected, and maybe a little fake, or would you prefer the authentic of that person?
0: Depends the industry I'm working in.
1: Take industry out of it. Somebody that would be in charge of you prefer them to be authentic in themselves like 100% of the time. Now, it's it's hard to – so, see, I – Because I,
0: if someone's their authentic self all the time, then that would make me be fake sometimes. Because if I know you're going to react a certain way to a situation, then I would then play a character – not a character, but, like, I would play it a certain way to get the reaction I want. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I understand it's
1: what you're saying. It's either
0: you're fake or I'm fake, so I get the reaction I want
1: but I'm also curious to a point because I've gone through like very different levels of training of emotional mm-hmm. intelligence and my question has never been able to be answered. And that's like as easy as if someone's being emotionally, if someone's use, not using emotional intelligence with me or if I have somebody getting fired up and I come in and act all calm, Like it's just so it's so extreme. What I'm trying to say is wouldn't you prefer your leader gave as much fucks about something as you were giving fucks about it? Like if it was something super important to you, if – you know, like I couldn't couldn't stand in the restaurant industry. If a customer was incredibly rude to one of the servers, that's when I actually would get fired up at a customer. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, hey, man, you know, we'll take care of your meal. Don't come back. I've said that two or three times, only two or three, which is like phenomenal because I worked like six years or something. But I think there is a point to be like, hey, like I'm going to get fired up here a little bit and that person's gone because like we don't need their business. I think the difference is
2: letting your emotions control how fired up you got or you being in control of your emotions. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you could get fired up at that customer and go up and punch him in the face. That's not a leader you want. You got fired up and had the whereabouts to like step back and be like, all right, this guy's obviously a pain. Like I'm fired up about it. I'm going to tell him to not come back in a polite way. You know what I mean? Like if it, yeah. you're in control yeah. of the emotion still, your, the emotions aren't kind of controlling your actions, yeah. if that but makes sense.
0: Also, I think the way you handled that as a manager reflected on the people who are under you. So I worked, for, I worked with you for two years. You were in a managerial position and I saw you handle situations that I was like, I'm not... This is above my pay grade. I'm not about to get. <laughs> I'm not about to get in this. However, a lot of I went to. I moved to a different city. I continued to work in a restaurant, and then, however, I took very much your stance as a quote-unquote manager position. However, I was not. So, if I had uh, servers in a position that were in lower seniority than me and they were having issues, but our manager was busy, I would be very happy to step into that role for them, knowing that my i was fired up but i was not about to be punching bitches you know because of that i had seen that happen and and it'd be successful and i had known that that would be approved by people above me so if we were busy if my managers were busy in another position i'd seen another manager handle it that way there was no problem for me to go and help a lower seniority server do a very similar situation
1: yeah well watch this. Yeah. Watch this segue to the next part of the book. We're gonna talk about Newton's first law of emotion. Inertia. For every for every, <laughs> for every action, there's an equal and opposite emotional response. I didn't even mean to do that.
0: But that is how it goes. <laughs> People just, are led by example. Us. Very we're much just, led by example.
1: Um and I want to talk about Okay, So we have a little story And I'll give a brief breakdown of the story And so he talks about This girl There's this girl And when she's young and having fun uh, The four things she cares about For the short story version of this um, In this order Really awesome DJs, really good drugs Work and then sleep So it's actually crazy about that Is she actually values work more than sleep Which is would you say that's a that's a good value system for some people or the assumption the assumption of norms i use this as a different word for that i just can't remember it off the top of my head but the what society expects of us is we value work the most than other things so work over sleep that that is that's very, very
0: much a capitalist society yes that is very much a western society thing
1: but it's interesting because then we get mad at this person for caring about drugs and caring about awesome DJs. So their their value hierarchy is kind of weird and broken. Now, she goes on a volunteer trip abroad to help a third-world country, and her value hierarchy changes. And this goes back to like what Jeff was talking about and perspective and gaining experience and so now all of a sudden, she goes and helps people in a third world country, and it changes. So now it's saving children from unnecessary suffering, work, sleep, parties. So now parties has come all the way down. A new one has come up, but work and sleep haven't changed. And I, it, it's funny if you look at the two, and he kind of briefly talks about it. But if you look at the two, work and sleep never changed. And that's interesting because now work – is a different type of work to her, right? Work isn't work anymore. Work is helping others, um, trying to get a better equal life for everyone versus the other time where she was working to like get DJs. Pretty interesting. So, and then we'll go into this part and we'll talk about it a bit. But here's the funny thing about value hierarchies. When they change, you don't actually lose anything. It's, It's not that my friend decided to start giving up parties for her career, it's that parties stop being fun. That's because fun is a product of our value hierarchies. When we stop valuing something, it ceases to be fun or interesting to us. Therefore, there's no sense of loss, no sense of missing out when we stop doing it. On the contrary, we look back and wonder how we ever spent so much time caring about silly, uh, tribal thing, and why we wasted so much energy on issues that cause... That didn't matter. I'm just laughing because, like, this is just so relevant. It's crazy.
0: I was say, this is our. Uh,
1: these pangs of regret and embarrassment are good, they signify growth. They are the product of achieving our hopes. Bang!
0: I think you... it's funny <laughs> you see all this. This is
1: just crazy. This it's is crazy. very
0: relevant. I, I think people, I don't know if you know us from real life, or if you're just a fun listener, Uh, we've all known each other since we were about 2021. And when we first met, we were in a very different part of our life where uh, our lives were football, partying, and then work in that order. Um, And now at the ripe old age of 27, 28, uh, I would say they've shifted a little bit uh, where I, I feel like we just don't party as much anymore. So it's a very relevant blurb from the book where shift in perspective can also shift whether or not you have the quote-unquote FOMO Uh, because we've come and hung out as a big group in our hometown and you guys could all go to the bar and I would just be very much happy doing the pre-drink at home and then waiting for you watching HGTV until you came home and I had zero FOMO whereas if you had asked me six years ago Uh, when we were all going to the bar and if you were to make me sit at home I would die true I feel like perspective hope um in terms of like big goals big overcasting goals is very different depending on age and perspective changes as you age do you not feel like you're a little bit more enlightened now than you were when you were 21
1: Absolutely, don't look at the camera and expect that I'm say, thinking something bad. I was thinking on a train of thought. Um, Jeff, do you, Jeff, Jeff,
0: do you not think that you're different than you were when you were twenty one?
2: No, hundred percent different. Um, I like at the beginning it talks about like your before and after story. So like um, you're trying to do this, so after you will get that, like uh, people people go to work so they can so they can pay for their kids' college, right? Um, that's their before and after people, you were in the the job that you were because you thought that in 30 years you could retire and you'd be happy with lots of money. you were doing this before. So after you could have this. And I think that, um, what happens is when you're, when you get one of those, uh, life moments where your perspective changes, your before and after story changes a lot as well. Right. So it goes from being, um, what you value changes completely so before you were maybe valuing money now maybe you're valuing uh, more of a purpose um you know what i mean does that make sense yes of
1: course it makes sense i think something interesting about our friend group very interesting and like um you know kudos to you bringing in Big Mike into our life. Shout out to Big Mike. Oh, my God. Uh, what a senior. Brought, brought Hawaii and the Shaka, and that's the and logo. The Aloha and Aloha lifestyle. Everything, everything about this podcast was started by Big Big Mike.
0: We love you, and I hope Makana is going to bed easily.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I, what I learned from hanging out with him more and more and more, like, honestly, when you moved away, Jeff, like, when you moved away and it was just, like, me, Lana and Mike, and Cam like we got a we got to experience Mike for real and it wasn't just like that wasn't your friend all of a sudden he, he became our friend you. yeah and and you know what he taught us because he's a lot, he's a few years older than us and has that experience but i think that just comes from getting older and having more experience i think you're we're slowly realizing four or five years doesn't matter it matters, but, like, it's not actual per- – It's In not the actual-
0: grand scheme of things, it's not that much.
1: I understand now when a employer will say, you don't have experience. It has less to do with, can I do the job? Sure, I can do the job, but do I have the experience to do it? No, there's no way. I will fail on my face for a lot longer because I have the lack of experience or life experience to do a job. So that being said, even with, like, going out for parties to get back on track, um i never had a problem you know i don't get that full distaste of going out but i need my group of friends there i need like you guys i need mike i need landon i need all i need the homies there and that's what i care about now that has changed for me more before
0: less partying and more hanging out with your friends
1: yeah so go out to have fun was Mm -hmm. our thing now it's i don't care what we do as long as I got the group,
0: mm.
1: if I got the group, oh, I could I could. We could be in the
0: backyard all day.
1: Please, <laughs> get a fire, get some ukuleles going, like let's go. But and, and that's what's changed for for me was just that perspective of friendship, and like everyone assumed when I moved out on my own out to a city, I moved to a city on my own just for people that don't know who I am. Uh, moved to a city on my own for this job that I lost. And, yeah, I added that in there, little little slug. But that, that's not the point of it. The point of it is I did that and everyone expected me, oh, you're so outgoing, you're so extrovert, you're going to make, make all these friends. But when I got here and I started meeting other people, like some people are great, but you're never going to make those same connections to people that are around that long in your life.
0: But do you also think that's because your perspective at that time was focused on your career? No. You were not focused on social building because you still had the quote-unquote core group with you.
1: If I stayed out here for three or four years, maybe. But in one year, there's no way I could build. What, what I was trying to do in my head and what people were thinking I was going to do because I was so, you know, I'm so outgoing. I'm very I'm very chatty. Obviously, I started blogging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, and I made a lot of friends in my hometown and I I hung out with a lot of different people, but who are the people I still call every day? And like, who are the people that I still message on Instagram or Facebook or whatever? It's the people that I built really strong connections with. And I, I, 21 year old me would have no clue about that. He'd be like, nah, dude, everybody's great. You just gotta meet them. And now I'm like, now I'm 28 and I'm like, nah, dude.
0: I don't think that's necessarily (laughs) true. I don't think you're giving your 21 yourself enough credit.
1: Oh sure, we were great, but I I don't think I have the same perspective or knowledge or wherewithal to understand what's going on around me. People were very like I was a very nice guy, and people abused that a lot. Yeah, but I also not-
0: think that you like this is totally digressing. But I also think that you as a, a people person knew who the. Not to be like, oh, she took he took her home to Kathy, but like there were you weren't going to take everyone home to your parents' house and onto your parents' boat or like to your friend group. like for people who don't know, Ben and I were friends first, and he and he was one who introduced Jeff and I. And you weren't just gonna do that for for anyone. You're even back then, you were very good at reading people, which is why I think that your emotional intelligence and your ability to lead and all stuff like that, came through because even at the age of 21 maybe you were 22 at the time you were still able to read people to a certain extent where you were like is this person worth my time or not
1: I think I'm better at reading people who value give true value back I'm better at seeing not only that, I'm more confident in myself and we talked about this earlier today mm-hmm. but I'm more confident in myself and like understanding what I'm about and like Being able to like hear people talk about different things and like understand that, if that makes sense. I I know I know better what my value hierarchy is now. So here's your thing what it what it was at twenty one. At twenty one, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what my value hierarchy was.
0: Are you more hopeful in society now than you were back then? Now. You're more hopeful now. Jeff, do you think you're more hopeful now? Or do you Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Do you just think that's because your guys' circles have grown or because you yourself have life experience?
2: More life experience, for sure.
0: But do you think it's because you've surrounded yourself with people who have given you more life experience or if you sought those out yourself? What do you mean? So...
1: For the record, like, he brought Big Mike, which is, like, the biggest... the biggest change to our friend group of all time 100 <laughs> percent.
0: however Jeff and I have lived out here for four years now we moved away we moved to Vancouver Island and I fucking love Big Mike I will leave my children to Big Mike if I die however when we lived in Kelowna not to bring like sexuality and things into it but when we lived in Kelowna there was very much a norm everyone was straight for the most part everyone was like white we had some cowboys from alberta we had some people here when we moved here you met people who were uh bisexual lesbian couples things like that do you think that changed your perspective on who you met as a person or do you think that was already in you before we came out here
2: in before i came out here i don't yeah. think that was See, that's, different that's, at all
1: yeah you're si- i'm not gonna lie you set yourself up to fail no I, I just was, wonder
0: uh, i wonder that
1: not to fail, but I I have been baffled by our friend group for the longest time, because we are the biggest mix of people, and I I can't even pinpoint like our parents must be great <laughs> like that's I don't know what I mean. we're, like, all so we're all so accepting we're all so accepting we all found each other, but Jeff and I like knew each other since grade four, and we didn't become friends until grade like twelve.
0: Exactly, that's the thing is like you guys are very much not to like stereotype you, but you are white males from a very much upper middle-class society. So yeah. putting you and Kelowna, or where we came from, Kelowna itself is very much that society that caters to that population. So when you move out of that population, you to a much bigger city and us to Vancouver Island, which is very much a more liberal city. I, 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 would like to hear your situation on society, on hope, what you think about society, what you think about your outlook on the world, what you think about your outlook on your friend group in your past, stuff like that.
1: I've learned a lot living out here on my own. Don't don't get me wrong. I made friends out here. But like <laughs> what, what when I was saying that 21 year old Ben had no idea is because like I can sit back now. And through, like, evaluating, like, when this book says what has changed, what mm-hmm. has changed for me is I appreciate those people who are still around. And I can recognize. Now, don't fool. And, and I, I've had people tell me this to my face, which is crazy, and I ignored it back in the day. But, you know, people would tell me how – people would sometimes think I'm fake because I was very nice to – I was extremely nice Put it this way. I was nicer 10 years ago than I am today. I was nicer. Now, That's don't, mis- a fact. <laughs> <laughs> don't misinterpret that for me not caring about things and caring about people. But I was very naive and very open to a lot of different, you know, whether you came from Vancouver and you had your perspectives. Like, I never judged anyone for their perspectives. but mm-hmm. And I don't want to say I judge now, but now – like, if you don't have a great outlook on life, or if you like, you know, if someone's a little worried, bit more you're and
0: close minded, you would yeah. be less welcoming.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, if, 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 oh, yeah. Like, and that's terrible. That might be terrible, but that's if just you know, like, that
0: seems I, good. I don't, I don't know.
1: Like, that's the craziest part about life is like, what's, what's, when, when should we change and when should we cut off people and blah, blah, blah. But, you know,
0: I think that comes with more confidence, though, because like you said earlier in the podcast, like, Back then, you were a lot more uh, insecure, stuff like that. Whereas now, you don't give a if those people like you or not.
1: Am I doing things to a means to an end for negative reasons? Mm-hmm. Am I doing nice things for people to make them like me? Mm-hmm. And I bet ya, if I if I were able to like, fully recall some things, 100%. Did like,
0: I, I, That's what he talks about a lot. Did I about, buy like, some yeah. drinks so people would like me?
1: Bet you I did. Did I... I don't know, pick people up that weren't my best friends that needed a ride? Probably. Like, you know, I, I can't answer that off the top of my head. But uh, I'll say that younger me was very influenced by trying to please many people. And I wasn't totally happy.
0: I want to see just perspective on this. Because you guys, as much as you were friends growing up for a long time, you had very different outlooks, I feel like. Like I kind of feel like when I met you, Jeff, you just like already didn't give a fuck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I, I've always been like that. Like, uh, I don't. Yeah, I feel like my perspective on on people and friends have like hasn't really changed a whole lot since I was younger. And like, not to sound harsh, but like I usually chose friends based on like how, like what they brought, like what value they brought to me, if that makes sense. Like I didn't, I didn't pick friends because they were the popular kid or because I wanted to like get in with their friend group. It's like, I picked friends based on, uh, what value did they bring? Like, were they making me a better person? Like, did they challenge me? Did, uh, did, could I count on them? Uh, if I needed them, like, that's how I, I kind of have always picked my friends. It, it, if that makes sense.
1: hundred percent. It makes sense. That's the way you describe that now is a better way I could put it in words. That's how I feel now versus how I felt when I was 21. Even though Kiana says, oh, you were able to find me. Yes, I found you. But <laughs> I was fair, also friends with a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I also think that if you, if you come out of every phase of your life with no friends, you fucked up. Uh, I can come. I can list a friend from every phase with elementary school, university, my ballet group someone I met in massage therapy school, I have not a lot of friends, but I have a lot of very close, very close friends. I don't have a lot of acquaintances, I guess is a better way of saying that. And I can say out of all of those friends are from a different phase in my life. So um, not to poo-poo on you being like, oh, you can't see through the garbage. You can, you just, uh, it's easier for you to narrow down the people you give a shit about now, so say I was that one friend you made six years ago out of 20 people, now you would have one friend out of those, out of five people. It's not to...
1: Just a thought I had. Do you think some people just connect and that's just the way it's going to be?
0: Well, Ben, you and I did. That's but what I mean. That's exactly... I don't think a lot of people have that.
2: I... I think that happens with some people. Like you just, you connect and you become close friends yeah. it feels like you've been friends with them for a long time yes but i think that's pretty that's not with far everyone, you though. between and i do don't you think, that... think it's moments though because
1: like what jeff said about so for those that don't know jeff and i know each other since like grade four took us till grade 12 which is like i'm just gonna spitball that's eight years i'm just throwing that out there could be wrong could be right um known that guy my whole life been around my whole life best friends with my best friend. still never hung out with him and it took us a year of football and grinding through that shit. I think to be like, "Hey, that guy's all right. Hey, that guy's all right. Like, hey, we blocked beside each other, and you don't piss me off. Oh, Okay, you're all right. Like, I, I don't but know. Do you think and that's because that, like, you changed, except- or
0: because Jeff changed?
1: Uh, I definitely grew up a lot. So
0: I, it was. More I, I was.
1: I was. I was a big wimp. <laughs> <laughs> It took a lot of punishment of football to make me ha- like a quarter tough as Jeff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's just that's the things I think about in terms of maybe
1: like, that's why Jeff liked me after he's like relationship
0: hey, like it took you those six to, those six to eight years to like find yourself before Jeff was like yes I will accept him into it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, maybe Jeff knew what he Jeff, liked.
2: Tell us, tell us what you thought of it. <laughs>
1: No, no, let's not get into that. Let's, go, let's,
2: let's fall <laughs> back. Let's go back to the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Uh, so Newton's second law of emotion. Our self-worth equals the sum of our emotions over time.
0: This is that relationship. I didn't even <laughs> eat. <the laughs> I debate. was I'm just swearing, saying. I'm that can't out. be listening, for six years.
1: If you're listening, we don't plan these episodes very well. This is just tripped me out. Maybe I should stop tricking whiskey. Well, okay, let me read this stop part. Let me, me read this part. <laughs> Let me try to read this part. This too is a part of a hope response because of equalization seems impossible. Our feeling brain comes up with the next best thing, giving in, accepting defeat, judging itself to be inferior and of low value. When someone harms us, our immediate reaction is usually he is shit. I am righteous. (laughs) But if we are not able to equalize and act on that righteousness, our feeling brain will believe the only alternative explanation is, I am shit, and he is righteous. Whoa. So let's talk about that line at the end of that reading. I am shit, and he is righteous. Because there's no explanation of why that person mistreated me. After we were just talking about why we like some people, why we don't, why we treat people nice, why we don't.
0: I think this comes back to reciprocation. Um, And they do talk about it in the book, Whereas, like, if someone's mean to you and they punch you in the face, your first response is to punch them back in the face. Whereas if someone's like super nice to you and does a pay it forward, good deed, your first response is to pay it forward, good deed, reciprocation. Which I think plays on this really well. If you think someone's done wrong or right to you, you feel the need to do something in response to that
1: how for jeff how do we gain that perspective of not of not becoming the victim how do i gain that per- how how do you get to that level where like kiana saying in 2014 you know you already kind of like understood what you wanted who you wanted to be and like people around you maybe not your job but you knew who you wanted to be how do you get how do other people get to that level Or what do you think helps that?
2: Uh, Personally, I think like playing sports growing up helped. And then also martial arts helped a lot. Uh, Like you already kind of have like a code of ethics that you follow with martial arts. And I feel like that definitely helps build your self-confidence and helps you like kind of it gives you a guideline to follow, if that makes sense. And I think if you have good uh, mentors in your life that you can kind of learn that at a younger age, if that makes. Yeah, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, you had sense. you yeah. had friends in taekwondo like phil was a good example who was older than you mm-hmm. and like not to be like let your freak flag fly but they were very much on on that sense of like be whoever the fuck you wanted to be yeah and, and we're here for you
2: and like taekwondo specifically it attracts uh people from every kind of background like mm-hmm. taekwondo like it it, it it attracts the, the, like, not to sound bad, but it attracts the weirdos. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, those are, that's like where the nerds go. And like, that's where like, if you don't fit anywhere else, like martial arts is where you fit in. And that, like, that's one of the things I love about it is because I, yeah, everyone has a place there. Like, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from. But like, yeah, everyone.
0: And do you think because you've done martial arts from such a young age, that's shaped your perspective on who you associate yourself with outside of organized sports
2: yeah hundred percent like we always talked about in in martial arts for example like uh, you don't want to be e- even if you're with people and they do something bad you're going to be associated with them just because you were there and so like we talked about that in martial arts and like you know like kind of
0: accountability yeah
2: being accountable for who you hang out with and like kind of taking ownership for for not only your actions but the actions that uh, people around you are doing as well
0: so that very much led you into football
2: Yeah,
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. That makes I mean that makes complete sense. So once again, we just fall back right on the start of the book, and it makes sense why he's writing in this way. But you know, value of perspective and value of experience. Then the book goes into a six-part breakdown of how to create your own religion. Uh, A little bit different, kind of mocks religion. We don't have to get into the details of that. But it's interesting because it talks about, you know, and I'll just read from the book here. It goes, Its God value slowly shifts and becomes the preservation of religion itself, not to lose what it has gained. And this is where the corruption begins. When the original values that define the religion, the movement, the revolution get tossed aside for the sake of maintaining the status quo, this is narcissism at an organizational level. This is how you go from Jesus to the Crusades, from Marxism to the gulags, from a wedding chapel to a divorce court. The corruption of of religion's original values rots away at religion's following, thus leading to the rising up of newer reactionary religions that eventually conquer the original one. Then the whole process begins again. So it's interesting because where i see you know his his i don't know how many pages that was 50 page rant on how to create a religion um but i see the correlation there with the paradox of progress so we strive for progress we strive for progress we push we push we push and yet And so does religion, so does business, so does capitalism. And when we get to the top, there's like a boiling point and it bursts. And then we go back to the beginning of like trying to rebuild. And like things shift from what good they were doing to either making too much money, trying to instead of help the rest of the world, they're trying to force themselves onto the rest of the world. How about
0: we shift? How about we shift to buying into something and then being resistant to change, because mm. that can be both religion, uh, any sort of hardcore religion you buy into, and being resistant to change, as well as sport, as well as societal norms. Essentially, anything you can buy into, and then and then once those become your regular, you become resistant to change, which then leads to that bowling point you were you're pointing to so I understand why he uses religion as a an example because it is very easy to understand and that's that's why I like this book so much because he takes very phys- like uh psychological philosophical topics and makes them very easy to digest but if you if you take it down to what it is how how would that buying in prevent you from changing and then that becoming your downfall? Is like kind of how I like to look at it because it becomes a little bit more applied to other things.
2: Hmm. I definitely looked at it as how to get that buy-in like,
0: oh, like as,
2: as like a coach or uh, someone who's training somebody, like I looked at it as like, this is kind of how you can build a religion, but that's also how you build buy in with a team. Uh, for instance, it, it gives like a list of things you have to go through. So belief system, um, do you want to be past focused or future focused? Do you want to be violent or nonviolent? And as a football team, you you choose your, your kind of motto for the year or your belief system. Like we're going to be the hardest hitting football team th- that we're going to be the best defense in the CJFL. All right. That's a that's a belief system. And then you find uh, your followers, people who believe that they can be the best defense in the league. Um, that's where you, you, do you want to be the fastest defense? Well, then you're going to choose this, the small, fast guys, Are you're going to be the hardest hitting. Well, then you get those big guys. Um, and then the next one, rituals, uh, eat this, stand there, uh, recite this. This is like huge in every sport. Um, every team has their rituals and every player has their own rituals, uh, before game, before practice, uh, and building those rituals builds that connection with the team, just like religion does. And then again, choose a scapegoat, uh, who is. Who are we trying to blame? Like, oh, the refs are trying to keep us down. The league doesn't think we're any good. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, this is like such a—it's like a blueprint to to but building also, your football team. Do you team. feel like
0: that stops you from being self-reflective? What do you mean? In in your, for example, the the refs don't think we're any good. Blah blah, blah stuff like that. Does that stop you from thinking? Oh, we need to make these changes. Like. As I said before, you no, you have your buy-in, but it doesn't allow for uh, development and changes. I'm I'm just I'm just being that person yeah. who's like,
2: no, I don't think so at all. Because like you always have you always have to have a common enemy, and then you'll do whatever you need to do to beat that common enemy. You know what I mean? Like it, that's why coaches are there to to develop you and to make you better. Um, like you as a player. You're like that's why rivalries are so big. Like usually mm. the rivalry is the team that's the best, the it one that beat you last you year. More. That's that's the the common enemy. You know what I mean? Like we need to beat that team, and so the coaches help develop you to so you can beat that team. You know what I mean? So that's the. I feel that's
1: you know because he kind of he kind of mocks religion by the end of it because that's where the corruption happens. Mm-hmm. So does the corruption then for a younger team? happen when it becomes just about the winning
0: I think because yeah yeah. a self-development definitely gets stunted if say you're a rookie on that team that gets pushed to that point and it's the rest it's this team it's this it's blah 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 and not to poo-poo on coaching or that style but self-reflection is definitely a part of growth and that is also the quote-unquote boiling point of, of buying in is d- development. Yes, you buy in. However, you still need to continue to make changes in your thought, in your playing, in your religion, in the way you live, all aspects of your life in order to continue to grow without the boiling point.
1: I agree with what Jeff said there too. Like it, it is a blueprint, but I think it's a scary blueprint, honestly, of to mathematically say that there's a way to formulate a following and and i i I didn't write down the note but i recall reading about it of that's a scary part of religion is when Mm -hmm. you get that that false following Mm -hmm. of of here's what we're blaming it on And, and he even says that that's that's that scary like we're doing good to boom all of a sudden you know um you look you look at uh examples of hitler marxism Mm -hmm. like in that quote it all of a sudden it slips into you know communism needs to be spread around the world so that everyone is uh socially responsible it's that tipping point and so that is a delicate spot not saying that it's wrong but that's that that's what he's trying to say is it's that delicate point of like everything you're doing is right and then all of a sudden it's like a Boom, comes crashing down and, and then there's corruption or there's the atrocities of people misunderstanding the true message, mm-hmm.
2: that, I, false, that false false message. Yeah. I can see that on a larger scale uh, for sure. As far as like football, as long as you're still growing and becoming better, I, like the what I thought of, as you said, um, creating that common enemy is like going from high school to playing in the junior CFL. In high school, we hated anyone who played for KSS or Rutland. Like I don't care like what you said. When we were in grade twelve, I hated those high school teams. Then all of a sudden you go to the junior Canadian Football League and like half your teammate is from half your teammates are from Rutland or KSS and like you become one and you kinda you you grow. You know what I mean? Like you develop as a person and you get over the fact that yeah, maybe that common enemy was there, but no matter who you are, everyone needs that, that common enemy to get behind. And then after the CFL or CJFL going to the CFL. You might have hated the VI Raiders or Langley Rams or the Shore Rebels, whoever you were playing against. But when you go to the next level, you're like all teammates again. You know what I mean? You band together, you grow and, and you move forward, if that makes sense. I feel like the only time that it becomes an issue is if you're not like if you don't take a step back and look at the bigger picture, like those people who stay at the high school their whole time. That's the only football they ever played. And then they go to coach for that same high school team. And then they still hate people from Rutland. It's like, well, you just haven't you haven't stepped out into the real world yet, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's yeah, that's perfect. But it's that it's that scary teeter totter effect, you know? It's still it's fine still line. I still think I still think there's a fine line when coaching sports, and maybe it's not common enemy. Maybe. Maybe it's an internal thing. I don't have the answer on that. And the book doesn't talk about sports related to that religion. But definitely the keys to success follow a military standard. The best football teams have great leadership. The best football teams have the best discipline. The best football teams work the hardest. That is like, quote unquote, what the military expects out of its people. (laughs) Like, so, and, and then same with, you know, you can change those words to different words huh, yeah and all of a sudden it becomes a religious term right change hard work to devotion change well discipline still stays disciplined but in a different sense being disciplined to your following of uh, the Bible. You know, it's just – you just have to change those small little things and all of a sudden it becomes the same thing. And so in the Graham scheme, they're all talking about the same thing, but it's really scary if you falsely attach something to to a following. If you falsely just say something to get people inspired behind you, then that's the scary part of it, right? That's the Hitler, the Marxist, the communist, the dictatorship, uh, capitalist North America (laughs) – (laughs) right like that's the scary part
0: of it i feel like this whole book has kind of just come down to the word perspective
2: yeah and like not to awareness like i feel like you just have to be aware that there's multiple religions out there and just because you're following one now doesn't mean that that's the best one or that that's the one you should follow forever yeah you know what i mean like you just have to be aware that there are multiple religions there
0: like i feel like yeah perspective is a constant growing thing and if your perspective doesn't change over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, you're probably doing it wrong.
1: Mm. Another nice little segue. So the next part, part two of the book, uh, talks about Immanuel Kant, very famous philosopher. Um, You can look him up if you'd like. But basically shaped Western civilization with modern democracy, modern values, uh, allowing someone to have their own Choices in life. Now, choices doesn't come down to literal quote from the book: a box of cereal. Choices in what I will do for work, what I will, where I will live, how I will eat. These kind of choices, without having an overall say in a general sense, without being too too uh, direct on that. But we move into this why don't we grow up, why don't we uh, you know, the formula for humanity, of humanity and so in a quick breakdown of the first few parts of the ch- of the part two would be children, think about pleasure adolescents, think about principles then pleasure adults, think about just principles what are the principles of life I do this to to either little kid, if I eat ice cream, it tastes good. Uh, adolescent, I shouldn't eat ice cream, but I want to eat ice cream. And adult, I shouldn't eat ice cream, I won't eat the ice cream. That's just like the quick breakdown. That's just the very basic general part of it. And then so the why don't we grow up? So when we are little kids, the way we learn to transcend the pleasure slash pain values, ice cream is good, hot stoves are bad. It's by pursuing those values and seeing how they fail us. It's only by experiencing the pain of their failure and that what we learn to transcend them. We steal the ice cream. Mom gets pissed off. Mom punishes us. Suddenly, ice cream is good, doesn't seem as straightforward as it used to. There are all sorts of factors to consider. I like ice cream and I like mom. But taking the ice cream will upset mom. What do I do? eventually the child is forced to reckon with the fact that there are trade-offs that must be negotiated. So we'll start with that first part of it. Interesting, you know, preliminary train of thought that we used to have when we were speaking about like, how did we understand who was good to us? Who was not? Who do we value? Who do we not? And like, that just proves our point it's just psychology the human brain right
2: yeah yeah just I guess when you reach that more adult way of thinking uh at what age and then I guess it also depends on like certain certain aspects uh of life you probably think in adult way and then certain aspects you probably think in an adolescent way I guess it's just trying to make everything reach that adult stage of of thinking So,
1: crazy, because I feel like maybe I was still adolescent when I was 21, and I'll read you the part. (laughs) Adolescents need to be shown that bargaining is a never-ending treadmill, that the only thing in life of real value and meaning are achieved without conditions and without transactions. So, transactual relationships. So, I want to help you two because I want to. Not because... You guys are rich, and you guys will buy me things, right?
2: Which is yeah, we're definitely not rich.
1: <laughs> not yeah. But no, that's just to to give the perspective of what it's saying.
0: Here's yeah. here's my full circle question. Mm. Earlier, you, there was a quote about uh, white middle class yuppies being given everything they want. Blah 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 blah. Do mm-hmm. you think that has to do with the progression of the development between child adolescence adult do you think had you not been in a situation where you give it a child given everything they want they become adults who ask for everything they want clean my clothes cook my food blah 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 stuff like this do you think had they been uh, grown up in a situation where they were not given everything they need their development path would have been a little bit more accelerated or progressed or have changed at all versus had they been in that same situation
1: well 100 percent i think you know we can be destined to be someone we can have chromosomes that allow us to have more leadership or allow us to do certain things there's signs behind those kind of things of where mm-hmm. you are set a certain the nature place.
0: versus nurture kind of thing
1: but i also know that you can try to defy those grounds of nature, those those things inside you that that's just what development is. And if you can get your brain on the same page as like how you're feeling, your thinking brain and feeling brain on the same page, mm-hmm. I think you can commit to something and develop yourself and get gr- true growth.
0: But at what age do you think that people become aware of those things?
1: Different for every single person.
0: Do you think it's just based on genetics or do you think it's based on
1: a? Uh... You're going to hate my answer.
0: Do you, uh, this is a nature all, versus nurture question. Of
1: it. No, it's all of it all at once.
0: Yeah.
1: There are some people that are born that will have calm composure their whole life and be level-headed. And that's just the way they are. And people are going to go, what kind of adversities you face? Maybe they can't recall. That's another thing. You know, some people just want to bury trauma or bury different instances in their life where they don't want to remember the bad. They want to remember the good. But that being said, there's always going to be people that are calm. There's always going to be people that are get very angry. There's going to be people that get very sad, but through a combination of what your genetic makeup is, and then the experiences you go through is who you become.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny because as a, a very career quote, that I got from when I was working with the football team, it was, well, it depends. (laughs) It's my favorite answer. Well, it depends.
1: (laughs) So, and and that just goes back to like the, you know, eventually figuring out what what I figured out, I think the most, and, and through this book, what he talks about, you know, adolescence and as you grow up to an adult, and how your values change and what you care about i think the interesting part where people are are worried about generations and how they're growing up i think maybe it just might take longer for that millennial group to understand things because there was no war there was an iraqi war but Mm -hmm. five thousand soldiers went
0: it didn't affect their personal day-to-day lives kind of
1: thing no we, we knew stuff was going on. We were shocked and awe. We were, oh, my God. I guarantee you, as bad as this is to say, like 60% of the population forgot about the atrocities that happened in North America within a month, three months, a like half a year. Mm-hmm. Boom. Out of their memory. Going to forget about it. Uh, move on with my daily life. Worry about uh, the somebody mismade my coffee at the coffee shop and somebody burnt my bagels. How dare they? Like, that's what they're going to give a shit about four months from now because that one atrocity didn't truly affect their life. They just saw it. And for the first time in a while, they, get, they had empathy for somebody. They're able I'm,
0: to. As terrible as it is to say to see, I'm very excited to see how this pandemic will influence the upcoming generation and how they are empathetic or thoughtful towards different situations in the future.
1: See, the funny thing is, particularly
0: like school age kids. <laughs>
1: I don't think it really I, I'm gonna be interested to see if it didn't it didn't affect this generation. It's it's gonna affect them in a sense of whatever people our age and people a little bit older than us decide to like really change the changes we make now, that's where they're gonna be like, Oh, those old people are making all these changes because of that pandemic. But you got to understand, people are more connected than they've ever been. These kids already know about Skype. They know about Zoom. They know about gaming. You know, the gaming world is completely changing. It's getting more popular than real sports. Like, for some people, life didn't change.
0: So you're just thinking that the pandemic was an opportunity for the online world to grow. Particularly in a younger generation.
1: I think because the, older generation, I think the older generation finally came in. I think the yeah. younger generation is already here and they were already sewn into social, not social distancing, but physical distancing. It's very different. Damn, I'm
0: naive in that sense.
1: <laughs> well, I just, I just, like when I thought about it, like people game and stream and they stream seven days a week. That's their job. So what changed? Nothing. They can still do their job. They get paid a lot of money to do that. You don't understand. Streaming is uh, is one of the hardest things you can do because you have to stream 24-7 or else you lose followers, then you lose money. Yeah, exactly. I know, you're shook. But the thing is, I don't know if the younger generation will even understand what's happened. I think the older generation has jumped into this more technology world and found out like about connectiveness and, like, being more in touch with people than before because before it would be really hard to make a phone call or turn on the internet or whatever like i know i grew up for a a few short years of waiting for the internet to turn on hey i'm gonna go on the internet nobody use the phone click (laughs) like so Uh. a few very short years i
2: kind of hope i kind of hope it does both like i kind of hope it brings the older generation to realize that like yeah, you don't need to go into the office to do work, you can do work from home. And like, yes, you can do meetings over Zoom or Skype without having to like drive into the office every day. But I also hope that the, the younger generation realizes that like, they need physical contact, and they need to see their friends and get outside and like, see people and to not be too consumed by the internet and gaming and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, I think I think we need both both sides of that
1: you take the what's it i can't remember the saying but yeah 100 and i bet you it has a lot to do with the simple psychological part of um you have a ball in the corner of your house it's been sitting there for five years you never touch your ball i come and take your ball and all of a sudden you go hey yeah that's mine no no I, i'm gonna use that i'm gonna use that right now or a weight or whatever gym equipment or Mm-hmm. who knows right like all of a sudden your brain goes no no i'll, I'll use that why are
0: you taking okay. that away from me? you don't know what you got till it's gone yeah you <laughs> but
1: and and okay so as we try to wrap this book up because it's a pretty long podcast for us but this book was so good highly recommend to read it we then quickly go through um modern maturity crisis we, we keep talking about values perspectives uh what is freedom what is not freedom in a sense of value perspective and the choices we make and so one of them is like is it freedom to have a choice of many cereals, or is it a freedom to have uh you know a right to walk down the street what what is freedom what is not is, you know what this book opened my eyes to is my situation where I lost my job, living on my own. Am I devastated? No. Why? Because I learned how to sit back and go. Well, I got a second chance at life. It's just a different way to perceive it. I could go, my life, my my career is ruined. My blah blah blah. Oh, this is that. I wasted the last three years of my life. Didn't waste the last three, three years of my life. I gained experience, knowledge, perspective. And so I think if we did more of that as a society, like, you know, it, it's kind of like the ending, which I, I I won't fully disclose the ending, but everything's fucked, but there's some hope. So we move into the final part of the book, which is like, don't know how you feel about AI, but we talk about First, a computer beating the world's best chess player, and then eventually chess tournaments being run by, you know, just computers because humans can't compete. And he asked the question, are we bad algorithms? I don't even, man, he, he planned this book out well. I see why. We're talking about this book, and that just all segues into what we're talking about. So are we bad algorithms, plain and simple? You know? Um, right here Um, but then maybe some single cell organisms develop a way to trick other little and like sensors thus interfering with the ability to find food giving itself an advantage and he's just talking about cells and how the bigger cells beat out smaller cells and become and formulate and, and that's how life's created or whatever but humans do the same thing to each other in a capitalist world
0: I think a good example compared to uh, chess using chess as an example, uh, humans versus uh, computers and computers in general versus like AI versus like human thought processes is uh, everyone learns via trial and error. And as an AI or computer algorithm, uh, the errors have very mild to no repercussions. Whereas in, hashtag human software, or in regular society, if you make an error, there will be repercussions to it. So I think our progress is a little bit more stunted just because we have to deal with the repercussions that we make when we are doing our trial versus error thought processes.
2: Thoughts?
1: Well, sure, unfortunately, (laughs) there's technology because like you said it's been a while since we read the book but there's technology that does exist and he talks about it from google that is an ai thinking protocol machine and it beat these chess software programs learning chess with eight hours before the tournament
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and it learned through trial and error and thought of new ways how to play chess that Nobody thought of before because the AI or the chess software – wasn't AI yet. The chess software was programmed by humans. 100 million ways to play chess, 100 million ways to win. The artificial intelligence taught itself how to play and how to win, and it beat the best programs in the world, which is pretty scary. And he kind of talks about, that that's kind of why one of his titles are, are we a bad algorithm? Are we the inferior being on this planet?
0: Yeah. Here's my question. Do you know anyone in the world who can focus on one thing for eight hours with not thinking about anything else?
1: I can barely handle coaching a football game for three hours.
0: That's I, exactly I, it. Time? There is no way you can find someone on this world who will mm-hmm. practice something for eight hours without thinking about something else in their life at all
1: damn i'm not gonna lie i never thought of it that way
0: so whether or not you are great at chess and you can problem solve and critically think and trial and error something through and you have an eight-hour period to try and learn the game of chess great to you but there is no way you will not think about your mom or your grocery list or how you have to go to the bathroom or how you're thirsty or how you need to do something else in that eight-hour period
1: not wrong, mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, not wrong one bit. Not I don't to say that to we're a flawed
0: up. algorithm. I'm just saying that we are not an algorithm because we are multiple algorithms together. Yes, chess is an algorithm, but also our human function of thirst and hunger is an algorithm. Our need to go to the bathroom and shower and have hu- and have human contact is an algorithm. So we are not one algorithm running at one time. We are multiple algorithms running at the same time. So comparing us to a single AI computer program is not fair. We are a dual processor.
1: True. True. Jeff, what do you feel about that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing to add.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So in a long-winded way, he disagrees with your points there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I won't read the five pages of disagreeance with what you said, but it's very... I, I've i never thought of it the way that you said it, which is why we discuss, we talk about things, mm-hmm. we have perspectives on things. Uh, but I'll, I'll read the ending, and we can talk about that really quick before we finish up this show. But what he says is, we will worship at AI's digitized altars. We will follow their arbitrary rules and play their games, not because we're forced to but because they were designed so well that we want to. Right. So this is a part I actually forgot about. So he actually talks about how because – if we go back to like the beginning, we talk about Simon Freud's nephew, one of the – I don't even think we've talked about him very much, but uh, Simon Freud's nephew, the big marketer or whatever, figured out what humans want and uh, how to manipulate humans into buying things and, and purchasing things, and he figured out how to get products bought. But the interesting thing about that at the end of the day is we wanted these things. I wanted to be able to go on some device and instantaneously talk to my friend. I wanted to be able to go on a device, click a button, and have something show up at my door in one day. We wanted that. I wanted that. I enjoy it. I'm not going to lie. It's amazing. And, and another amazing podcaster actually talks about it, uh, Gary V. you know, eventually – Stuff will show up at your door because you think of it. I wanted this. Boom. It's at your door. That's where Amazon technology is probably going, is you sign up for that, and if you want something, it's, like, in your bucket. You just have to, like, accept it, and boom, it's at your door.
0: A dark outlook on humanity. Not necessarily AI, but I just think humanity as a whole. And uh, one of the things I find quite deep pleasure in during this pandemic is watching animals take over villages. (laughs) now that there's no people around uh and and global warming as a whole has has improved quite a bit since our our humanity has taken a step back and to stayed home and i think as a whole it's a dark perspective as he said to see how we would be without us the or question mark
1: it's like this motherfucker knew this was coming because this book was published a while
0: (laughs) That's, that's my great perspective is if we were not here, what would be? Would it be better?
1: And, and so I think, you know, as a race, as people on this earth, you have an interesting time of life. Do you take it as a negative or take it as a positive? Like we have a chance right now to shift careers, shift what you're wanting to do, help others change society change capitalism we actually have a genuine chance to change capitalism as much as i'm like kind of for it i i don't have an answer of how you would change it because it's been going on for so long that i'm not gonna say to stop doing something unless i have an answer for it so the hard part right now though is clearly we need to change you know the way airports are run the way certain economies are set up like an economy can't cripple just because we need to save people's lives that that doesn't sound there's no way you can explain that to me and if either of you can give it a shot but if lives are the most important things and we need to stop the economy Mm -hmm. but the economy collapses and causes more death okay that that system to me just sounds broken if I'm just talking no, from my two business.
0: People have been deemed unessential. Uh, we agree. <laughs> like that. I but
2: think even saying. more so than just like shifting perspective, it's like uh, shifting our values and like our, our ethos more than more than just the perspective. I think pers- the perspective change is what's going to drive us to change our values, if that makes sense.
1: Mm hmm. Does make sense. Don't doubt yourself, Jeff. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. that, everybody. <laughs> I 100% agree. Um, it's good sometimes in life to have...
0: It's a very rare ma- opportunity we have right now.
1: To have material things rocked for you to realize what's valuable to you and what's not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, is everything fucked? No. Do we have hope right now i would say there's partial media out there giving hope do we know there's a problem with media and fear-mongering yes did pandemic show it a bit more kind of i think people were more upset with media but i i think there's a rare opportunity for the world and for individuals which is is super rare normally individuals have lots of chances and many individuals at once won't have a chance to change what's happening but all of a sudden we're gonna have most of the population of the world change something they're doing by the end of the pandemic Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which is crazy
0: it's for thought for sure
1: yeah okay well thank you guys that is episode four crazy a little longer than our most episodes but uh What we're hoping to do is one book a month review episode. Uh, We'll just review that book. We'll talk about that book. We'll have the kind of discussions we're having. We'll maybe go off the beaten path a bit. It's what we do. Uh, Story of our friendships. But uh, the next book will be Fortitude. I don't have the back title of it, but by a man named Dan Crenshaw. And... Really cool story of the guy, uh, ex Navy SEAL, had an IED, explosive device, blow up in his face, lost his lost his eye, was kicked out of the Marines, or kicked out of the Navy, kicked out of SEALs. Whole life changed, and now becoming a congressman, and he and he wrote a really good book about, um, you know, just different things about perspectives of life and perspective, uh, victimhood, and different leadership skills. Really great read. Um, looking forward to digging into the book a little bit more. So we'll read that book and we'll do an episode about a month from now on it. And we'll try to keep doing some more episodes for you guys because had some people say that they want some more. So thanks, guys. Jeff, Kiana.
0: Yeah, so I looked it up. Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage by Dan Crenshaw.
2: I'm excited for this one.
0: I know you guys. So uh, the the two, the reason we're reading this is uh, Ben actually was listening to it on the Jocko Willings podcast. So if you want to go listen to that one, it's quite a hefty, long one. And I believe Jeff's listened to Ep- it as well. Episode
1: 222 uh, on Jocko Willings podcast.
0: Jocko. Okay, there you go. Uh, but we will be reading the actual book that they are digesting in that. In that and
1: podcast. then the next book will probably be Extreme Ownership by Jocko, but we'll, we we'll can't see. Do,
0: we can't do two in a row. I'm not going to say.
1: It's a different author. We'll see. Doesn't matter. We'll see. Okay.
0: All right,
1: guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening.
0: Stay safe. Bye. Wash your hands. Chee! <laughs>